we are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. Good evening, you are very welcome to The Cabin and you are very welcome to this episode of Wide Atlantic Weird, which is, as always, the podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kean, and here at The Cabin in the Woods, somewhere in Wild West Cork, we investigate stories of the strange, some hauntings, some ghosts, some monsters, a little weird fiction, and this episode is all about the most infamous ghost story in all of English history, that is, of course, our long-awaited Borley Rectory episode. Now, we like to be critical but not cynical here at The Cabin, and let me tell you, when it comes to this story, trying to tread that boundary was difficult indeed. This is a story about which much has been written and said, much of it very opinionated, a lot of back and forth over the years. There are some very controversial characters involved in the history of the tale itself, and I really have my work cut out for me in trying to be both critical but not cynical when it comes to this case, but I am going to do my level best. Now, a few things to mention just before we kick off. You are listening to this hopefully all going well um, as our Halloween episode. Hopefully the timing is right. And if I've got everything else lined up as well, that means that our Patreon should be finally up and running. So even if that's not the sort of thing you're interested in, please do take a look. I would love you to do so. I'll put a link to it in the show notes and in the bios from our socials, which as always are at Strange Ireland over on Twitter and White Atlantic Weird Podcast on Instagram. What I've done is I've made out three tiers and I amused myself, if nothing else, giving them funny names. So the one, the first one is called Psychic Investigator, the middle one is called Monster Hunter, and the high-end one is called Deep State Puppet Master. So hopefully kind of covering the gamut for the three different kinds of people who might seek out the sort of weird stories that we like to do here on this show. So yeah, link will be in all the usual places. At least take a look. Uh, I'm excited. Hopefully it would be really nice to get some more community stuff going. If nothing else, give us a shout. Tell us what you'd like to see more of. Maybe there are different benefits you'd be more interested in or different levels you'd be interested in sponsoring us at. But whatever, whether you can afford to do that or not, we are happy to have you. We're happy to have suggestions. We are happy to have any interactions at all. Um, as always, we like episodes to be shared wherever it is that you listen, whether that's on socials or whether whether it is on your your podcast app and if you are on the podcast app reviews are helpful as always and i'm always happy to read those out a couple of quick things as well oh we mentioned the 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 terror on a recent episode the story about the franklin expedition to the north pole which disappeared back in the 1840s it is one of my favorite stories from history now mr chris joyce who's been a co-host on several episodes back when we were talking about the history of the gray aliens Chris got in touch this week, um, not to say that not only was his fam- his illustrious family connected to, uh, as we know, uh, the the famous James Joyce, which which is true. He has a perhaps slightly more dubious connection, at least within the realm of family legend. So he he asked a relative recently whether or not they were fa- related to any famous Franklins. I'm not sure where he got this idea. And somebody in his family mentioned that uh, several generations back there was um, an aunt who married. And now, the now late John Franklin, who was a third generation ship's master, and more importantly, a ship's pilot. 
he came from the same part of England as did Lord Franklin of the Northwest Passage ill-fated venture, so there is a good chance that he was related. Very interesting. That's like I said, that's one of my my favorite historical stories. Chris does point out that Franklin is not actually thought to have left any heirs behind, and this perhaps seems a little bit unlikely, but I do love how in Ireland and in England, it's very common for there to be a family legend connecting your family to something famous from history. I have a few myself uh, on the Dublin side of the family connected to stuff to do with the Revolutionary War back in the 20s. And uh, I don't know, I feel like everybody wants to be connected to something interesting from history if they can. Now, speaking about our our beer for the episode, um, I took a trip to Borley Rectory once upon a time. Uh, I was living in Essex at the time, and Borley Rectory, of course, is up on the Essex-Suffolk border. So I took a long day trip. I drove slowly around the, the wonderful, beautiful Stour Valley. I, t- I told this story recently on uh, the Ghost Trail show, so shout out to you guys on YouTube, to Faye and Joe, who are always really good friends of the show and appeared in various episodes. Uh, I think most recently Faye was on talking about um, flashback ghosts and kind of time slips and that sort of thing. And I mentioned that I I got to see the the house where Borley, the the place where Borley Rectory used to be, and on the way on that day at the Stour Valley, by the way, folks, well, well, well worth a visit if you are in that part of the UK for any reason, and it's at a time and place when you can travel around easily. It's it's beautiful. It's it's gorgeous from a natural history point of view, but also from a historical one. There are tons of lovely little um, kind of old fashioned villages with these. Um, Tudor-looking houses on, and beautiful black beams and white stuff in between, whatever that's called. I, I, places like Long Melford and Sudbury, which are close to Borley Rectory and kind of associated with the story as well. And at Long Melford, which is probably the nearest town of consequence to the village of Borley itself, there is a brewery I stopped off at called Neithergate Brewery. And for this episode, at great cost and expense, I have acquired a bottle of Suffolk County Ale, which is lovely. It's your kind of traditional, uh, slightly flat to my mouth uh, English ale, which is a thing I am fond of from my time there. It's not for everybody, but Neithergate is a, is a great spot on a day out. They have a lovely garden area where you can sit out, and it's just really ideal countryside. It's that that classic old fashioned. When you think of the old fashioned English countryside, this is the the sort of places that come into your head. So a wonderful, wonderful spot for a day trip and a, a lovely place to stop and get a drink that is Neithergate Brewing. So I'm, I'm very proud to have acquired a bottle for this episode, being as uh, it's, it's appropriate to the topic. So Borley Rectory, what put this into my head was last summer I took a trip to another haunted rectory here in the south of Ireland in County Kerry. Now, uh, Mo- not modesty, but rather proprietary forbids me from naming where it is or who the connection to it is. It's somebody who has been on the podcast before, but not for a while. Anyway, they have a family connection to this absolutely gorgeous uh, mid to late Victorian rectory in a tiny little village out in the wilds of Kerry. Tiny little place. The rectory itself is everything you would hope it to be when, when you think of a Victorian era haunted house. It's got three floors, it's got loads of rooms. Um, it was, of course, an, an actual rectory run by a rector back in, in the 19th century. And wonderfully, it has a ghost story attached to it. Now, I put up a bunch of 
pictures on Twitter recently. I might retweet them this week just so you can take a look and connect to this episode. It's It's been really, really well maintained and kept up by the family and it's gorgeous. And it just puts you in the mindset of, you know, being a rector in those days was a really, really sweet deal to some degree. If you could tolerate living in such a, a remote and lonely place, you know, sounds pretty exciting to me, especially in a lovely I won't call it gothic, it's not, but, you know, the situation of, of, of being in a place like that strikes me as being rather gothic. The ghost story, which has been actually quite well, re- or at least the murder story behind it, which has been very well researched, happened back in the 1890s. The rector supposedly shot his own mother, um, having, you know, not, not being entirely right in the head, so to speak. The ghost story associated with a particular room, which to this day is a, is an upstairs bedroom known as the ghost room, which of course reminds me of the blue room from the classic Borley Rectory story. The story goes that you can hear the disembodied sound of a ghostly horse and carriage coming up the driveway. The window in the ghost room actually looks out onto the drive. That sound is supposed to be the rector coming back from the local pub um, with his shotgun in hand ready to, to basically murder his mother. And that's the story. And and going to the place, I had not been there since I was a kid. Um, was it, it was just as as spooky and wonderful and atmospheric as I'd hoped. And it put me in the mindset of the Borley Rectory story, which has been a, a an incredibly formative haunting. It it in a, in a very real way, it is the classic English ghost story. Now the the history of you know short stories with supernatural haunted houses is much older. There is a grand Victorian tradition. Um, from earlier, from before the Borley Rectory story really became famous, which is not until the 1920s. But it, there's something formulaic, formulaic and, and formative about it. There's no question that Shirley Jackson, who wrote, of course, The Haunting of Hill House, had something of Borley Rectory in mind. There's no question that Richard Matheson, when he wrote Hell House then in the 70s, was also riffing on some of the same ideas. Some Some folks say that it was, in fact... Uh, Matheson was sort of replying to Shirley Jackson in some way. I think I've mentioned this before, but I'm a bit of a heretic in that I prefer Matheson's Hell House to Shirley Jackson's Hill House, but that's that's neither here nor there. So I took a visit to Borley Rectory last year, and Borley Village is, is really, really tiny, just on the Essex-Suffolk border, like I said. Villagers there have put up with a lot over the years. Um, the place was made infamous by the charismatic ghost hunter Harry Price, of course, in the 1920s. And ever since then, they've dealt with rubberneckers, as, as Price himself called them. Uh, people who were... Everybody always is looking for a sensation, and there's nothing more exciting and sensational than the prospect of seeing something supernatural for real. So as soon as anywhere in the world, really, as soon as a place gets a reputation for anything spooky happening, <clears throat> it seems that it becomes the centre of a certain kind of perhaps dark tourism. And the villagers, supposedly, according to everything I've read, don't really appreciate this so much. So if you're going to visit yourself, I'll just be mindful that there's not a whole lot to see. You can drive through it in just a minute or two and you know drive past the the famous places associated with the ghost story the church from the ghost story is still there the main house is gone of course it burned down in a fire in 1939 but next to it was and is a, a stable um, a cottage the cottage where the the sort of servants who who operate who worked in the house and in the stables that's still there as well so you can see it and it's actually older 
then Borley Rectory House was itself it's slightly pre-Victorian though it's it it, it looks quite Victorian and where the house the main building was itself um, there are now some newer buildings which are done in reasonably tasteful red brick and you know look quite in keeping with the rustic countryside themselves but I mean if you're interested in the story go and take a look you can walk in the churchyard but you can't go anywhere else everything else is private um, but yeah something to be to be done maybe on a longer day out because the the countryside all around it is just so nice and it's littered with these beautiful little villages with gorgeous pubs where you can sit out on a summer's day or even a you know a, a sunny autumn winter day and have a have an english ale and yeah great 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 times i remember from doing that as a kid i first learned about borley rectory you guessed it from the osborne supernatural haunted house ghosts and specters book by maple and myring from 1979 i think a lot of people who like this story including the the recent uh, carrion films version the, the the animated movie which is is worth checking out an incredible amount of work went into that and and they really the, the makers of that film really <clears throat> know their know their stuff and did their homework but like me they first came to know this story from this book as a kid and there's a wonderful full-size double-page spread which is a cut-out breakdown of the house um, showing like a, a layout of all the different rooms and where the different ghostly phenomena supposedly happened. So, so many classic phenomena. You know, this is the reason why this haunting became so formative. And it's... The, the house itself, the shape of the house, it's big, it's rambling. It had more additions done to it until it was like almost in a circle. So there were just so many, so many rooms and it just puts you... It's almost like being in a spooky gothic castle. You know, that's how big and and weird it feels. And it's the sort of thing nobody in their right mind would ever think to build now. My, my main source for this episode is a book called The Enigma of Borley Rectory by Ivan Banks. Now, like I said at the beginning, so much has been written about this story and people have argued back and forth over the years. Harry Price primarily has proven to be an incredibly divisive figure and, and, and we'll get to him. <clears throat> I'm not going to try and get to the facts, quote unquote, as I usually do on this show. It really isn't practical. Borley Rectory has become almost like a piece of English folklore. The story itself told and retold so many times. It's the, the ground has been so trodden and it's very, very difficult to get to grips with who said what when and who believed what when. The Enigma of Borley Rectory by Ivan Banks, he's definitely a believer and that's his tone throughout. But this is looks to me like being the most thorough book on the subject. So I, I'm occasionally a little bit sceptical of some of his conclusions, but he goes into insane amounts of detail about the whole thing. Uh, he did a lot of interviews with some of the still surviving people involved in the story as, as much as he did. The book is from 1996, but you can tell um, much of the research happened decades before this in the 80s and the 70s. The book itself feels very old-fashioned and very kind of musty in a delightfully... Uh, old school English ghost story way. Uh, bizarrely, every single page is split into two columns, like you know, like a newspaper. I, I have no idea why. I don't think I've ever seen this done in a book before, but it just makes it feel incredibly old fashioned. I, I think maybe Victorian novels might have done this, um, back in the day. So I really like the book. I like the tone. He's he he is credulous to some degree, but he goes into so much detail to and and he he. 
He deals head-on with the criticism of Price that was carried out after his death and the criticism of the case. So, though I don't always agree with him, I, I have to admit that he did his homework, he did the groundwork, he spent any amount of time in Borley Village itself, and he spoke and interviewed just about everybody he possibly could have who was still alive and involved in the story at that particular time. What he also does is he takes into account Harry Price's book. So in 1936, um, Harry Price wrote a book called, let me see now, uh, Confessions of a Ghost Hunter, in which he is a little bit more skeptical about the case. But then later on in the 1940s, wrote, he wrote two books about Borley Rectory, one called The Most Haunted House in England, which is, is incredibly famous. That is pretty much how Borley Rectory is remembered to this day. He wrote a second book then called The End of Borley Rectory. Harry Price also did a year-long investigation of the house and left a lot of files and stuff as well. So his books were written apparently from memory and not everything in them lines up with, you know, things he said and notes he made at the time. So for that reason, it is incredibly difficult to be 100% sure as to who did what, when, who said what, who believed what, at what particular time. As Americans say, what did the president know and when did he know it? Very difficult to do that. I'm going to pop in here and there when when I can, when I feel like I can make a, an authoritative statement there, but it's going to be, it's going to be difficult. And this story, more than most that we deal with, Ty is kind of lost in the foggy mists of time, which is weird because you know, compared to some stories we've dealt with, it wasn't really that long ago. And, you know, some of the people involved were alive and, and giving interviews up until the 1970s and 80s. My copy of The Enigma, delightfully, is from uh, South End Library, which, as, as it should be. And I first, I first found this book in an Essex library, to my delight. And, uh, you know, here I am a couple of years later, ordering a new copy and yeah to my delight also from an Essex library just as it should there's something very magical and special about this book it just feels really niche and old-fashioned and it, it's so thorough it really was uh, a delight to read so this book was written largely in response to a critical book about uh, Harry Price after he died that was called The Haunting of Borley Rectory it's by three writers Dingwall, Gold, Goldery and Hall from 19... 56 and Ivan Banks is is by and large responding to their criticisms throughout this book some some of his thoughts I sound reasonable to me some of them maybe I have a harder time getting down with uh, Dingwall, Goldery and Hall incidentally were all members of the SPR the Society for Psychical Research the first two of them actually knew Price and worked with him and seemed to have had a uh, they seem to have been fairly charitable charitable about him for much of his and their career and then after he died they sort of turned on him and wrote this much more critical book. Banks lays the blame on the third author, a fellow called Trevor Hall, who absolutely had it in for Harry Price. He wrote a book called The Search for Harry Price in 1978 which seems to have been the primary kind of nail in the coffin for Price being taken seriously by the public at large. Any books I had when I was a kid about Harry Price would often talk about him and his adventures and his doings and then finish up by saying that, you know, most of what he did had been sort of debunked. And I think they were probably taking this book, The Search for Harry Price, at face value when they did so. So I'll, I'll get into Banks's criticisms of their research if and when it's appropriate to do so. Now, 
the reason Boily Rectory's story is so is so complicated is there's really four eras with four different families living in the house, all of whom experienced different kinds of phenomena, and all of whom were like odd or weird or different in their own ways. In fact, the guys behind Carrion Films, who made the recent animated version, mentioned that their take on this was that there's something about the house itself that just attracts strange people, and it just somehow reflects your own your own proclivities and your own beliefs and your own weirdness inside which I quite like. So the house itself was built in 1863 for a family called the Bulls which is a wonderful name and it was of course a a rectory so it housed a reverend and the first reverend was Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull. We'll just call him Henry Bull. He was uh, he's described in in the book as being a a wealthy squire parson. He's very old-fashioned well-to-do English countryside gentry. Uh, he he's a, he looks like a model Victorian. He's a big, thick, bull-necked guy, appropriately enough, with uh, wonderful Victorian mutton chops. And he was a, a kind of an old-fashioned manly man. He liked boxing and he liked fowling, you know, shooting shooting animal birds primarily. Uh, apparently, one of his hobbies was he would be found um, in the library of Borley Rectory with the French windows open, shooting across at the back lawn, trying to shoot uh, bur- bur- rabbits and birds and such. So, um, the Reverend Henry Bull built the rectory in 1863 to replace one and possibly even two older buildings, also rectories on the same site. Now, 1863 is a high period for spiritualism across the whole world. It's only about 20... About you know, 15, 20 years after the, the Fox sisters come up with the notion of of uh, spiritualism, which is communicating with ghosts, that was in, in Hydesville in New York State in the 1840s. And the it just, just everything about this story tells me that these people were living in a, a very supernatural world. And that's tremendously interesting to me how the, the these kind of Church of England people who you know, in, in my stereotypical opinion, would always see as being, you know, as, as kind of sensible and, and stolid and, and without imagination and would, would be see themselves as looking down on other groups of people for being credulous or overly superstitious. And yet they were absolutely surrounded by this miasma of belief or at least acceptance in the idea of of, of spirits and the afterlife in a way which strikes me now as distinctly unreligious I, I would suspect that most mainstream churches now would find this sort of not in line with their beliefs but back then it was it seems to have been much more open and it's not just the bulls there's a whole history of English and Anglo-Irish reverends who you know uh, collected ghost stories and sort of uh, non-Christian sounding uh, folklore as a hobby and yeah the, the bulls were only only one example of this the building itself uh, is described as being architecturally sullen, impressive though somewhat clumsy grandeur. I like that. So it's your classic Victorian red brick. It's ridiculously big. It's uh, ridiculously full of gigantic empty rooms and just out and out spooky right from the beginning. It's described as being in a more urban style than a rural one. And uh, uh, there's a quote in the book saying the building was an example of, quote, the worst that the bad taste of 1863 could produce. And that's from a man by the name of William Crocker in his book A Lawyer's Life, who I believe visited Borley Rectory and was at some point a friend 
of the family. Like I said, they kept adding to it over the years until it was almost in a square. So it had a courtyard in the middle, which was basically locked off from all sunlight and must have been a very gloomy place indeed. He had a very large family. Sources differ uh, between 11 and 13 to 14 children at different points. The problem is not all of them have records to show their births. Most of the information we have about them seems to be from when they were baptised. But one thing is a lot of them left diaries and it seems very clear that the family accepted spirits and spooky supernatural happenings around the house in a fairly matter-of-fact kind of a way. The house itself was said to be unusually still and cold. You had these the, the classic kind of cold spots, especially inside and just outside the infamous blue room, which was upstairs. It was the front and central bedroom um, on the first floor. One of the most famous spooky things associated with the house was the constant ringing of the servants' bells. Of course, in those days, a large well-to-do family would have bells that they would ring by pulling wires in different parts of the house to summon servants to come and do certain things. And very famously, they, they were supposed to ring at crazy hours of the night, even after the bells had been cut, or, or the wires had been cut, or even after the bells had been removed as well. And uh, I got a bit of a flashback to this during the summer when I was in the Kerry Rectory as they also they had the remnants of the system that was used to ring bells for the servants there as well. I never heard any uh, spooky bell ringing during the night there, however. Other, other more sort of material things happened in the rectory during the bull's time there. One of the daughters apparently was slapped in the face while lying in bed. There were your classic traditional spiritualist wrappings, those kind of knockings rather than uh, kind of other kinds of wrappings. There were strange beings seen. There were crashes and uh, heavy footsteps heard. The footsteps apparently quite regular, always at the same time of night and often uh, laying out the same patterns of moving around the house. Most mysteriously, there were lights seen on in locked and unused rooms. Uh, mostly, you know, uh, of note because the building for its entire existence had no electricity and also no running water. It was quite, despite being a large and grand uh, house built for a wealthy family, it was it was quite primitive living conditions there indeed, especially by the, the turn of the 20th century. There was a maid who left early as a result of these hauntings and uh, there was the, the, the son, the oldest son of... Henry Bull was called Harry Bull. I mean, unfortunately, his real name was Henry Bull as well, but it, they seem to call him Harry. So we'll do that to be not to be confusing. Interestingly, his full name was Henry Foister Bull. Now, the, the name Foister will come back into the story later in an apparently unconnected way. But just put a pin in that one for now. He uh, took over from his father and became the rector in 1892. And during his time, even more spirits were seen. So... Uh, two of the sisters, I believe, were supposed to have seen a headless figure walking in the garden. And uh, frequently the ghost of an, uh, an old man was seen around the garden as well, who they presumed to have been the ghost of an old family gardener who they named Amos. So he was somebody who seemed to have been known to them from a couple of generations ago. And the, the idea of him being a ghost in the house seemed to have been something of a leftover of perhaps a family legend. Quite famously, there was also a phantom coach, just like in, in my Kerry Rectory story, uh, often seen with a headless coachman as well. And this came from, interestingly, all of these stories were told by the Bull family and, and one could 
perhaps get the impression that they were just interested in ghost stories and liked sitting around the fire spooking each other out, but a lot of this stuff was seen by other visitors and written about by other visitors as well, and certainly the house had something of a reputation in the locality at, at least. Also similar to what, what the, the ghost story I came across in Kerry was that on occasion the horse and cart would be invisible. Sometimes people just heard the sound of it going by and, and other times they, they saw it um, as a sort of a transparent coach with often a headless coachman. Now both the father and the son rectors, they both died in the blue room which is the one which has so many particular hauntings associated with it. Most famous, of course, of all the spooky denizens of Borley Rectory was the ghost of a Catholic nun. Now, this was something that apparently was seen so much, it was a bit of a regular occurrence, and its habits were known and accounted for. So the story went that the nun would often be seen appearing down at the low end of the garden, walking along the garden wall, and then making its way up and past the house and disappearing into a copse of trees. This routine was known as the nun's walk. It is said that, well, there were two octagonal garden houses on the property, and at least one of them was looking out onto the nun's walk. It is said that the elder bull actually built it deliberately so he could sit and watch the nun going by in the afternoons and the early evenings. It is also said that in the lower one he would sit and try and communicate with spirits as well. I've had difficulty corroborating these facts, but they certainly speak to the idea that at least after his death it it appeared to be common knowledge that he was interested in some form of spiritualism, which makes all of the other stuff that he believed seem less unlikely. You know, it makes me take the other stories a little bit more seriously. The nun was dressed in grey and was often seen uh, telling her rosary beads. Um, as the phrase goes, very famously the in the rather g- quite gothic looking gigantic dining room, which had a massive uh, a granite, I think, or, or marble um, fireplace with these two carved monks heads sticking out of the sides. Uh, you can look up pictures of this. It's quite incredible. One of them wearing a cowl, one of them not. The story goes that the nun, as part of her nun's walk, would end up staring in the window at the family and just looking at them as they were eating their meals until eventually Harry Bull had to break up the window. I've no idea if that's true. It's a magical story, and the the illustration of it in the Supernatural Guides book is utterly chilling and gave me, gave me the horrors as a little kid. It could be just a cool story invented to explain a bricked-up window, but I, I absolutely love it. That's what we're here for. There's no question that Harry Bull... Um, the son was also interested in, in life after death. He said that after he died himself, he would communicate with the family in some sort of way. So I'm just going to read briefly from the book here. Oh, here we go. In 1929, on June 15th, Mr. J. Harley wrote to Harry Price, and his letter tells us that during a visit by Harley to Borley Rectory in 1922, the two men had discussed, discussed the subject of spirits. Harry Bull held the view that a spirit attempting to attract the attention of those living could only do so by causing some mechanical disturbance, such as breaking glass or some other element. He also stated that following his own death, he would, if discontented, adopt this method of communicating with the later inhabitants of the house. It is odd indeed, irrespective of one's individual views, that the rectory was the scene of much physical disturbance in the years following Harry Bull's death, 
disturbances that included stones being thrown, china and glassware smashed, some furniture hurled about, and more besides. It's also true that later inhabitants of the house would claim to see Harry Bull himself as a ghost after his own death, but that is still to come. Now, the second family that lived in the rectory were called the Smiths, and their tenure was between 1928 and 1930. Now, this is the period when the rectory really becomes rather famous. So, it is the Reverend Guy Smith and his wife Mabel Smith. Uh, Guy Smith is referred to as being a, quote, Eurasian gentleman, which is a term occasionally used at that time, uh, similarly to how they used to say Ang Anglo-Indian, meaning somebody who was uh, maybe of both English and Indian background. Though it, it's, not, it's not entirely clear from the context, they did switch back and forth between those phases, and depending on the time you're reading about, it, it can also just mean a, um, a person of English background who lived in India for much of his life or his career. Regardless, they only spent nine months at the rectory, and, and depending on who you read and when you're reading them, this is because they left because of the terrifying spiritual activity or they left because of the absolute state that the house was in. Harry Price, uh, depending on when you read him, seems to have uh, supported both ideas at different points in his books, as far as I can tell. One of the weird things that happened to them, well, apparently lots of weird things happened to them almost straight away, which is interesting to me because here we have a completely different family, completely different background, there, on the face of it, there's no reason to expect the, these people to be susceptible to the idea that the rectory is haunted. But almost straight away, the, the wife, Mabel, finds uh, inside the house a small skull appearing to be that of a young woman. And suddenly the people in the village start talking as if uh, we have a, a classic English country house screaming skull situation. Or you can't throw that out or the skull will scream and terrible things will happen. Now, they did, they buried it in the garden, the skull didn't scream, but very soon after that, they were tormented by crazy noises during the night, bangings, rappings, and uh, again, the mysterious ringing of the servants' bells. A rather confusing and mystifying incident happens when Guy Smith, on his own, is standing outside the blue room, and nobody else in the house, when he hears a disembodied voice uh, mumbling and then getting louder, apparently a woman saying, don't, Carlos, don't. This enig enigmatic phrase has uh, prompted much head-scratching and some convoluted explanations. There is an idea that one or both of the bulls may have had the nickname Carlos for some unknown reason. I haven't been able to find any evidence that that was the case. But since the house didn't exist before the bulls built it, there aren't a whole lot of other earlier people it could have been unless we start looking into the ideas of, you know, previous inhabitants of the houses that were on the site beforehand which is something people do when they're trying to explain the provenance of the nun there is this kind of recurring idea that there must have been a, a convent or, or some such holy structure on the site if you go back far back enough banks does a really in-depth examination on this and comes to the conclusion that there almost certainly wasn't though there may have been other ones nearby in the vicinity in medieval times but that's an aside for now the Smiths often are also came across strange footsteps. This creeps me out. So because there were only two of them, they weren't a huge family. They had no children. They weren't a big family like the Bulls. They were only able to use a small amount of the house. And they didn't have, I think, a lot of servants like the Bulls had either. So they just, as a lot of Victorians did, or, you know, in the, and then later on in the 20th century, 
when the sort of big house with a big family thing became financially untenable, they tended to lock away large portions of the house and not use them. There were, there was something like 13 or 14 bedrooms altogether upstairs in Borley Rectory and they didn't need them, so they would lock them and apparently strange footsteps would come from these locked, disused upstairs rooms. Uh, one maid, also similar to the bulls that they had in their employ, left after only two days. And another maid apparently saw the famous ghostly coach crossing the lawn outside the house. Once again, they heard bells and they saw lights in empty rooms. Uh, apparently, by this point, the rectory had such a reputation locally that the, the rector couldn't get local parishioners to come to parish meetings inside the house. And he apparently became to, he came to become somewhat frustrated about this. Now, here's where things really kick off. So Guy Smith writes to the press and much has been made of this and what his intentions might have been. Was he some kind of attention seeker? He always maintained till the end of his days that, in fact, what he asked for was a solution. He didn't ask for newspaper reporters to come. He didn't ask for attention. He just said, this is a huge problem. It's driving us crazy. What can we do to fix it? don't really know what he expected to happen by writing to a newspaper. He wrote to the Daily Mirror and a reporter by the name of Wall came and visited and Wall apparently started to see weird things as well. And perhaps you might be inclined to, if you're, if you're uncharitable, you might be inclined to say, well, you know, a, a Daily Mirror reporter would be inclined to see weird things in a haunted house if it meant a newspaper copy. And I suspect you would be onto something there. He claimed to have seen a light on in an unused room and wrote a rather sensationalist newspaper report about it catapulting Borley Rectory into the national spotlight as the haunted house du jour. Now, the next key thing happens when Mr. Wall from the Daily Mirror calls Harry Price. And Harry Price, of course, at this time was already fairly well known and, and has a very polarising reputation to this day. I think he, he, he has been different things at different times in his career. He was a genuine sceptical thinker on certain occasions and he was an out-and-out debunker uh, he, of certain fraudulent mediums. Uh, at other times in his career, he very much showed his hand at being a, a kind of a, a, a man thirsting after attention and publicity. And he did some rather daft things in his career and he followed some slightly ridiculous cases I think, perhaps on the lookout for notoriety. And reading his own books and his own notes does leave you with the feeling that he was, if nothing else, um, thorough and he gave everything a fair shake as much as he could. Like I said, his earliest book about Borley Rectory uh, from 1936 uh, tells about his experiences at this time when he comes down to visit the house with, with Wall, the reporter. And he makes it sound as though, you know, he saw a lot of very convincing um, supernatural happenings but then kind of goes on to say that he reckoned it was due to the people living in the house in he mostly he was he was skeptical about the claims of the next family in the house after the smiths but we'll get to that so price he you know he he's a bit of a james randy but he's also a bit of a pt barnum and I, I mean that in kind of the, the worst sense of both of those gentlemen i think he was certainly someone who uh, liked the attention. Interestingly, he seems to have lied quite a lot about his own background to make himself seem uh, perhaps more important and in, in, in the all-important British class system of the time, kind of tried to cover up where he was from 
and his background as a as a basically the son of a shopkeeper he married well he married a woman who was independently wealthy and therefore he didn't really have to worry about money so he was able to follow his hobby for the rest of his life which was researching uh, psychic phenomena he fell out with a lot of people including folks in the spr and eventually had to set up his own sort of rival organization reading his work he he does seem thorough as, as i said he wasn't any kind of trained scientist he was just kind of like a, a a rabid reader and collector of of information about all this stuff and to to his credit he traveled to the places where they were happening he talked to the people they were happening to and kind of like mr ivan banks himself though i might not agree with everything he says uh, he he's giving it the best possible uh, chance that he can so he went to visit Borley Rectory in June of 1929. He travelled with a secretary, Lucy Kay. And this period is fictionalised quite nicely in a book called The Ghost Hunters by Neil Spring, if anybody's read that. Um, I enjoyed it when it came out uh, several years ago. So uh, Harry Price is hanging out outside the house the first night with the reporter Wall when they maybe have a, a sighting of the nun. So Wall sees some figure moving at the back of the garden. Uh, Price turns his head, but he's slightly too late. He misses it. But, you know, he's suspicious that something strange might be happening. They go back into the house and then famously uh, a piece of brick is thrown through the glass windows of the veranda, almost lands on top of them. From then, weird things just seem to ramp up. They uh, go upstairs to one of the rooms which had been locked and sealed and they find out that there are candlesticks and candle holders in there. Uh, when they come back down again, those candle holders are somehow thrown down the stairs at them uh, and they're showered with pebbles and other strange projectiles. All of the keys in the house pop out of the locks and fall on the floor of their own accord from, from locked rooms at the same time. So, interestingly, uh, Harry Price decides to do something which might strike you as not particularly scientific, but uh, is very on-brand for ghost hunting in the 1920s, and he decides to host a seance in the Blue Room. Now, the Blue Room already has a reputation for being the most haunted part of the house. Now, Price immediately starts um, asking questions of, you know, the spirits, quote-unquote, and he, he asks, they start to get uh, an answer uh, in the seance uh, through through raps and knocks and things like that. And apparently Harry Bull puts in an appearance. So apparently he is one of the spirits haunting the house. Harry Price asks him whether he had been murdered and he says yes. Mabel later says that Price, Price doesn't, again we're getting confused about who said what when, but there there is a version of the story in which Mabel Smith says that Harry Price, at that point, sees the ghost of Harry Bull in the room. And Harry Bull, yeah, big, tall, broad guy with with a beard. I think he would have created rather a terrifying spectre myself. Uh, at that moment, uh, a bar of soap jumps from a nearby sink. Uh, and there's a loud knocking coming from behind a mirror on the wall. This doesn't deter them. They continue with their seance until four o'clock in the morning, after which... Price, with uh, presumably balls of steel, decides to sleep himself in the Blue Room. By the end of summer 1929, the Smiths have had enough, and while uh, Reverend Smith continues to be the rector for Borley Village, he has moved out, both of them have moved out of the rectory and are now living in the nearby town of Long Melford. Um, If you go to Long Melford, you can see the bull 
I can't remember if it's the Bull Tavern or the, the Bull Public House or something like that, but it's a hotel and, and, a, and a pub and a restaurant, and it's absolutely gorgeous. And it comes with its own set of ghost stories, actually, but features on and off in, in the tale of, of Borley Rectory as various characters come to investigate from London further afield, and a lot of them stay in, in this particular hotel. It's got the classical, gorgeous um, Tudor black beams and white wattles, so absolutely stunning, stunning place to go and see. Um, during the time that the house is empty, villagers are apparently seeing lights on in the empty house. They hear crazy sounds from the inside. At one point, the Smiths come back just to move some stuff around and they are pack some stuff up and they hear an absolute cacophony coming from inside the house. When they get in, they find that all the furniture has been thrown around and uh, by 1930, they've had it and they leave forever. Mabel, interestingly, the wife, has said different things at different times and has been the source uh, of, has been a source for both proponents and detractors of the case. So if we go to page 208 in the book, uh, yes, so Mabel Smith later in life kind of turned, turned around on this and started to claim that, oh no, there was nothing ever spooky about Borley Rectory. The beginnings of Mabel Smith's about face on Borley is quoted in the form of a letter she submitted to the Church Times in 1945. Sir, I have read with interest your articles and letters on thump ghosts, and as I was in residence for some time at Borley Rectory, Sussex, the most haunted house in England, I would like to state definitely that neither my husband nor myself believed the house haunted by anything else but rats and local superstition. We left the rectory because of its broken-down condition, but certainly found nothing to fear there. Hastings pointed out the error in placing Borley in Sussex, but did at the time allow for the possibility of a printer's error. Also quoted by Hastings was the Reverend Henning's expression of surprise at the contents of Mabel Smith's letter to the Church Times, a copy of which he duly forwarded to Harry Price with the following comments, quote, I was astounded to read the enclosed letter from Mrs. Smith in the Church Times. There are still people in Borley who remember Mrs. Smith showing them the mystery light and then taking them into the rectory and finding no light in the room. It may be true that the Smiths did not leave because of the hauntings, but they had no strange but that they had no strange experiences is something new to me. Hastings, who is a researcher on the case much later, goes into considerable detail over the many variations between Mabel Smith's testimony and that of her husband. It is in this section that Mabel Smith's contrariness is most graphically demonstrated, and the whole section of the Hastings report makes fascinating reading. Ivan Banks makes the case that Mabel Smith's testimony from after the war shouldn't be taken seriously because... Well, basically, he kind of makes out that she was just terribly upset by living in the house and, and the death of her husband and the awfulness during the war. So she was just being a silly woman and we shouldn't listen to her, which grinds my gears to some degree. But it does seem to be the case that she made contradictory statements at different times. There's a certain amount of written evidence, specifically from Price and others, that she did uh, make a lot of statements to the extent that the hauntings were real, at least at the time why she may have changed her mind afterwards uh, I really have no quote for and so we come to the third and perhaps most controversial family to live in the rectory this is the tenant of the Foisters I told you that name would be coming back they were there between 1930 and 1935 and they were Lionel Foister and 
Marianne Foister. She's always mentioned as his, quote, much younger wife, Marianne. Uh, if you look at pictures of him, yeah, Lionel is getting on a bit. He, lo- he looks like a, he's, he's kind of rocking a late stage dad dad face. And, and Marianne is, is rather a younger and prettier woman who has had a lot of weird stuff written about her. There's been a lot of presumptions that she was sort of playing the field and it's not unimaginable that as a younger person she found the location stodgy and boring and kind of wanted some activity Uh, i don't have too much to say about that myself they had an adopted daughter called adelaide and they were actually brought over from canada to to basically the family needed somebody to take over the rectorship of the of the village and to live in the house and they tried lots of different people over the course of about a year and nobody wanted to do it so they somehow had to scare up these kind of long distance relatives and somehow talked them into coming over and I understand that the life there was a lot quieter than they had been used to in in Canada now the one interesting thing about where they lived in Canada the exact province escapes me but it was on the east coast is that there had been um, a few decades before a, a a very famous haunting called the Amherst Mystery, just uh, one or two provinces over. And the provinces over on that side are a lot smaller. We mentioned it on a recent episode. I think the... It was another ghost story. I think it was the Walsingham Ghosts one. We talked about this. A lot of the elements... It was a poltergeist story that was really uh, very prolific in the newspapers all across that part of Canada. And a lot of individual elements of it reoccur in Borley Rectory. So... There were knockings and there were writings on walls and there were bangings and smashings of things. Must be said, though, all almost all of that was happening at Borley Rectory before the Foisters got there. But uh, some less charitable folks who were a bit more skeptical about this say that Marianne in particular might have been inspired by this and was just looking to kind of drum up perhaps a little bit of excitement for herself. Regardless... The rectory was already very notorious by this point. The visit by Harry Price, the reports in the mirror, had made it world famous. People were coming from around uh, Britain to to see this already. People were organising coach tours from other cities, even by the 1920s. So it's impossible that, that they came there without any preconceptions. Maybe they didn't hear about it from Canada, but as soon as they got to England, if they had said anything about Borley Rectory to the public, people had connotations with the house. Another thing of, of note is that unlike the unlike uh, Reverend Smith, Reverend Foister was definitely interested in the hauntings because he wrote everything down in a thinly fictionalized form in a diary where he changes the name of the building and the town and the county. He changes the name of all the people involved. And yet he's, he also claimed that, oh, this is a true and accurate record of all the weird things that happened in the house. And it's believed that he intended to send this around to family members for entertainment purposes or maybe that he intended to uh, publish it. So there is the possibility that he was trumping up the story for that particular reason. Marianne was well, well, well in on all the spooky happenings right from the off. She was seeing the spooky ghosts of Harry Bull. She was hearing bells ring. A lot of stuff at this point is like appearing and disappearing. There's stories about... You know, oh, I, you know, a book appeared on this mantelpiece or a coat disappeared or I took the book away and it came back. And this stuff is, is not amazingly convincing to me. I think once you're aware that a place is, quote, haunted, you'll start, you know, interpreting 
uh, you start losing things and interpreting it in, in mysterious ways. I mean, that happens to me uh, occasionally when I put something down and I can't remember when I've put it and I'm convinced that, you know, it, it is it must be somewhere, but I can't find it. And yeah, just not the most convincing. And much is made of this, both in this period and after when Harry Price investigates. And it's fairly low level evidence for a haunting in my opinion far less interesting than just about everything else that we have mentioned but more spectacular things do start happening again we have physical violence marianne is walking outside the blue room the most haunted part of the house when an invisible hand strikes her and gives her a black eye oh i've just come across the place in my notes where I've written that uh, Nova Scotia was the bit of Canada that they were living in. Uh, I wish I'd found that earlier, but there you go. So um, during this period, there's a lot of projectile activity. They're pelted. Both foisters are, are basically pelted nonstop with stones and like weird things like jugs, doorknobs. There's an endless array of stuff that seems to be just thrown at them. Interestingly, it's not just them experiencing this. Other people who come into the house, uh, workmen who come along to work on the practically non-existent heating and a bunch of other visitors and friends all report similar things as well which you know takes this out of the realm of is it just this couple who are a little bit odd there's there's more to it than just that a lot of this stuff about like thrown things whether or not it's mysterious really depends on a lot of stuff that i think we're never going to know because you know the way it's written makes it sound like you know stones and jugs and irons were flying around um but like it could be more like the case that somebody turns their back and there's a crash and they look and there's a stone on the ground was that mysterious well depends on stuff like who else was in the house who else was in the room where was everybody standing what was everybody's position and that's just stuff that we're never going to know so i guess how you feel about that depends on how charitable you are to uh, like, like the fallibility of human witnesses and just general belief in the supernatural some other stuff which is kind of more interesting and more spooky is that that Marianne in particular repeatedly um, sees the ghost of uh, Harry Bull slowly ascending the stairs. Apparently this was a regular occurrence. He had a, a beat, as they call it in the book, that he would go up the stairs in the same manner at the same uh, same time of the night, which, you know, to, to those who are like me, puts you in the mind of the, the stone tape theory, the idea that perhaps ghosts are some sort of recording onto the landscape or onto the geology of the area or whatnot, that they're not in fact you know, independent spirits or souls. They're just some sort of artifact of of the earth that we're not, um, we're not familiar with yet. So I've always been attracted to that theory. Of course, it's widely associated with the, uh, the British uh, screenwriter, Nigel Neal. One of his most famous works, of course, is called The Stone Tape. It's a play from the 1960s, I believe, and or early 70s. Uh, it's brilliant. It's on YouTube. Absolutely worth a watch. And that's where we get the term stone tape because it's just called the stone tape people had used examples of this earlier and goes back to the work of people like tc lethbridge um so it, it's got it's got a pedigree behind it but i guess nigel neal is kind of associated with um popularizing it in, in pop culture the, the foisters also reported noises coming from the blue room uh, on one occasion there was an almighty cacophony coming from the empty blue room and when they went inside they found that the furniture was in massive disarray and to folks who believe that marianne was somehow behind all of this which a lot of people have written over the years and um, the author of the enigma points out that well just a lot of this furniture was large 
and heavy and probably more than one person on her own would be able to do. Um, we also get a lot of other reported experiences from, from external people, as I've said before. Now, Harry Price comes into the story at this point. In 1931, he visits in October with um, Goldney, who is one of the authors of the sort of anti-Harry Price book I mentioned earlier, The Haunting of Borley Rectory. So Goldney did work with Price over the years. And as far as I know, at least prior to the 50s and, and writing that book, he had a fairly good relationship with him and, and spoke well about him. They uh, they observe several strange things like flying bottles. There's an incident infamously where um, a bottle of wine turns into a bottle of ink and they hear the infamous bells ringing as well. Now, I came across some of Harry Price's attitude towards this, as I said earlier, in the 1936 book, um, the... What was it? The Misadventures of a Ghost Hunter or something like that, where he tells all this stuff as though it was quite mysterious and, and makes a good case for it and then implies that he thought actually it was Marianne playing dirty tricks. And what indeed did happen was that after this incident, um, Harry Price and his crew went back to the Bull Hotel in uh, Long Melford, which is, oh my days, I wish I could go there again. It's gorgeous. The idea of those uh, famous ghost hunters hanging out there um, you know, trying to decide whether or not they had seen something really supernatural in the early 20th century uh, ra rather tickles me, I must say. It's a gorgeous building. So they decide that Marianne is responsible for all this tomfoolery and uh, oh, I can only imagine the zeal with which they, they decided to go back to Borley Rectory and full-on accuse her of this. So they announce to the couple that Marianne is causing all of the hauntings. Um, in interestingly... Um, not only does Lionel Foister kind of predictably rally to her to her defense, but so does Goldney. He disagrees and thinks that the haunting was real, which is okay. So maybe that's one of the causes of splits with Harry Price, but you know, not in the uh, in the belief direction as we would have expected, but in the skeptical one. Well, very interesting. Eventually, a guy by the name of Sidney Glanville, who comes to be Harry Price's sort of second right-hand man, he eventually changes Harry Price's mind. He, he gives Harry Price kind of more details of other hauntings and information about Marianne that causes him to no longer suspect her of being uh, responsible for the hauntings. And by the time he writes The, the Most Haunted House in England, he's fully convinced that there is something uh, supernatural going on there after all. There is further evidence of phenomena. There's bottles being smashed consistently. Oh, uh, visitors uh, report seeing dark, spooky figures in the empty bedrooms and in even worse in the bedrooms where they're actually staying. And again, what's interesting here is the sheer number and diversity of witnesses. Strange little bits of paper with Marianne's name written on them start appearing around the house. Um, the author of the book makes the case that well, he thinks it's interesting that the haunting seems to focus on Marianne, being as she's a young woman. Of course, that feeds into all these ideas in parapsychology at the time of poltergeist being perhaps like a manifestation of the sort of psychic reserve of particularly adolescent girls. Now, Marianne obviously is a lot younger or a lot older than that, but nonetheless, uh, some trappings and tropes of that idea are at play here, I think, in the author's mind. But there's no question that, that the hauntings do seem to focus around Marianne. And here we get one of the most famous of all of the hauntings and kind of one of the most intriguing and uh, and spooky, perhaps because it's rather inscrutable. 
I'm referring, of course, to the pencil writing that mysteriously appears around the house. So I think downstairs outside the kitchen, there is the phrase Marianne Light Mass Prayers that appears on the wall. It's too high for little Adelaide to have written it and uh, nobody else claims responsibility for it. Marianne, though, becomes kind of fixated on these mysterious writings when another one appears upstairs, I think outside the bathroom in the corridor, and this one infamously says, Marianne, please help get. Strange, even for somebody faking it, the, 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 the position of the words is unusual. It has been commented over the years that is this how a, a French person in those days might have uh, written a sentence who didn't have very good English because its, it's syntax is closer to French. There's a whole backlog of a story of the idea that the, the nun, the ghostly nun, is a, a French um, woman from a con convent nearby whose name is Marie Lair, and uh, that's too much for me to go into. The back and forth over the potential his historiography of that is, is voluminous and uh, far from conclusive on either side. Marianne is so taken by this that she writes underneath it, I cannot understand, please tell me more. So she's interested in having a response. A response does come, but the writing is so convoluted that it's difficult to make out more than a couple of nonsensical words. Now, the famous British paranormal investigator Peter Underwood much later had the writing checked by a graphologist, I think is the name of the, that type of person who would be an expert in such things, who claimed that all but one word of it were demonstrably written by Marianne herself. Uh, Underwood and uh, particularly Ivan Banks were not convinced by this and came up with rather convoluted explanations as to why it probably wasn't her. But again, not not convinced, not uh, definitive, I would say, on either side. Some weird stuff about Marianne and Lionel. So at about this time, she was sort of 30-ish, if I'm reading, if I've got my chronology right, and he was 52. And it turns out that actually the families knew each other when they were younger and... Lionel, as a young curate, actually baptised Marianne shortly after she was born and boasted about this to another uh, priest, apparently on their wedding day. So, lovely stuff there. Much is always written about Marianne being a, quote, wayward woman and having affairs left, right and centre. I don't, not, don't particularly care if she did. I'm not that interested. It doesn't have a whole lot to say about the, the hauntings, I don't, as far as I can tell. Um, Ivan Banks, unfortunately, is a little bit hung up on this and kind of proposes that maybe she was having affairs with like lar a larger amount of people just because she was in, in close proximity to them, including the bulls who she met earlier uh, on an early visit. And uh, he even hints at Harry Price being involved, which... I don't know. I, I'm not going to get into it because I don't really care. One thing that is interesting, though, is that whether or not she was like a board housewife who concocted these hauntings uh, because she had gone from a r relatively exciting life to a much, much quieter one in, in a more rural area, which is a possibility. The phenomena that occurred during this time, besides the, ha the writing on the walls, everything that the Foisters experienced had happened either before them uh, or would happen again after them. So, I mean, there's nothing, there's very little there that's uniquely tied to her. Let's put it that way. Later in life, their relationship got even stranger. She married another guy after they moved out um, uh, bigamously while Lionel was still alive, but while he was 
just old and sick and kind of bedridden and apparently everybody who knew them at this time when they were they lived in Ipswich believed that he was her father when he was in fact her husband and she was just living with this other guy which is wonderful uh, anyway she eventually went to North America by herself and as far as I know lived out the end of her days uh, living by herself uh, she was tracked down decades later and similar to uh, the guy Smith's wife Mabel weirdly denied everything and went back on just about everything she had said in those days not necessarily explaining what had happened just saying that noth nothing spooky ever happened at all nope and in fairness to Ivan Banks like it's hard to take that at face value when it it flatly contradicts everything that happened and everything that everybody else who knew her at the time um, said was happening as well but that takes us to the end of the Foisters' time at Borley Rectory, and we come to the final quarter of this, which is the tenancy of Harry Price himself. So after the Foisters moved out, the church decided that they no longer wanted uh, rectors to live in this particular building. I guess it just had too much of a reputation. It was a, a national scandal or disgrace, depending on how you wanted to look at it. So Harry Price, well, much... Much has been said that he, quote-unquote, invented Borley Rectory, and it would never have existed without him, because he popularised it. He, the, the title of his book, The Most Haunted House in England, became synonymous with the house, and that's how it's always been remembered. And it's just, it's a, it's a wonderful turn, almost like a, a, a tabloid sort of turn of phrase that immortalised the house and put it into the annals of, of parapsychology and becoming pretty much the archetypal haunted house. I don't know if that really stands up because the stuff that Harry Price reported for all of the reputation he has for being this kind of charismatic P.T. Barnum type character, the stuff he reported was, was is not that is not that intense, is not that dramatic. And he seems to have been a lot more careful and thoughtful and slow to acknowledge paranormal activity than his reputation might suggest. He obviously had spent the early part of his career being known as a famous debunker and as such was not keen to be taken in by any fake shenanigans and in fact he was well known for uh, debunking mediums or false mediums he famously said people don't want debunk they want the bunk i think showing a pretty good uh, understanding of the human condition there and read into that what you will is that an indictment of you know, people's credulity, or is that him making the case that, you know, might as well got to give the people what they want? I don't know. It's up to you what you think there. Ivan Banks says, would he have risked his reputation by either faking phenomena or trumping up, um, you know, a, a case that was not actually very strong? Well, you're going to have to, I mean, that depends on your reading of his character. And I think a thorough investigation of Harry Price's character at this late stage is beyond the scope of this episode that would probably have to be its own episode but let it be said that 1930 between 1937 and 1938 harry price rented the rectory while it was empty before it was bought for the last time and he basically hired a number of volunteers to stay there and camp out now again harry price's character here comes into play i will say that he feuded with both skeptics and believers especially Arthur Conan Doyle and he seems to have been a somewhat irascible character but 
you know, Banks makes out that some of the criticism of him is due to, or was written by people who just didn't like him personally. Interestingly, he almost worked with the Nazis in the 1930s. He was desperately trying to find a new home for his very uh, voluminous and very, very well-respected library of uh, paranormal literature, which still exists. The Harry Price Library is in London. But at the time, he was trying to find a new home for it and uh, was very interested in having it moved to Germany and working with the Nazis, who, of course, always had a bit of a weakness for fringe theories and might have welcomed him. But fortunately, uh, the war intervened and he was kind of unable to navigate the Byzantine bureaucracy of the uh, Third Reich. Rather fortunately, I think. So his investigation of 1937 to 1938, he put an ad in the paper uh, requesting these volunteers to come and go to the haunted house. I'm going to read it out because it is positively delightful. <clears throat> in, the, in the Times, he wrote, Haunted house. Responsible persons of leisure. Leisure, probably, he would have said. Leisure and intelligence. Intrepid, critical and unbiased are invited to join a rota of investigators in a year's night and day investigation of alleged haunted house in home counties. Printed instruction supplied. Scientific training or ability to operate simple instruments and advantage. House situated in lonely hamlet, so own car is essential. Right box H989, The Times, EC4. Delightful. Folks, do you think I'd have signed up for that? I absolutely would have. That would have been a dream assignment. So, oh yeah, I also want to read uh, that he had forty, he had forty-eight um, volunteers altogether, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little bit about who they were. So on page ninety-four here, what kind of people signed up for this? So it was, it was of utmost importance to Harry Price that they be folks who would have been, you know, quote unquote respectable in the. Uh, you know, middle to kind of upper middle class world that he inhabited in uh, mid-century class conscious Britain. So amongst the folks doing duty at Borley Rectory that year were Oxford undergraduates, professional engineers, uh, the British proconsul to Geneva, uh, BBC engineer. Who else do we have? Oh, several more Oxford undergraduates, an RAF flying officer, and uh, and associated gentlemen of leisure. So gives you an idea of the kind of people who were hanging out there at the time. He had a document known famously as the Blue Book, which he gave to everybody with instructions of what he wanted them to do. And he's criticized in this book and in others for his, unfortunately for his research being not particularly thorough. He basically had them walking around the house and visiting every room at uh, hourly intervals and recording anything odd that they found he was much criticized for giving them like a long list of potential activity to be aware of and people have said you know this is an example of a pseudoscientist um, putting a putting ideas in people's heads but b you know kind of making his case before he making his conclusion before he does his his research he did write an important note which i want to mention in the blue book which said Although some or all of the above phenomena may be observed, it is very important that the greatest effort should be made to ascertain whether such manifestations are due to normal causes such as rats, small boys, the villagers, the wind, wood shrinking, the death watch beetle, farm animals nosing the doors, etc., trees brushing against the windows, birds in the chimney stack, or between double walls. 
which I think is a pretty admirable list of, you know, things not to get fooled by when you're trying not to spook yourself by, you know, misinterpreting ordinary sounds in a big, spooky, empty, haunted house. Although, small boys being on the list gave me a chuckle, as did the villagers. <laughs> Those villagers, you know, always trying to, always trying to spook you out when you're on your perfectly scientific haunted house investigation. Uh, compared to the previous tenants of the house, the stuff that these people reported, and they, they reported a fair amount, it's not dramatic and it's a little bit disappointing. There are some more pencil marks seen, but nothing nothing really legible and nothing that's passed into myth the way the Marianne Please Help Get does. It really does kind of imply that some sort of tortured soul is trapped in some kind of purgatory and is desperately trying to break through to the material world in, in the you know whatever way it can. Nothing like that appeared again, although some pencil marks apparently were seen forming on the wall before people's eyes and creating a shape that was reported as being similar to the symbol for the Duke of Wales, which is kind of like, I think it's the three white feathers, a little bit like the French fleur-de-lis, which uh, also gets a mention in the book. There were some accounts of objects moving, mysterious thumps and sounds in the house, uh, nothing like nothing really as incontrovertible as the previous stuff. Uh, one researcher was in a room by himself when he heard the door lock. Nobody else was supposed to be in the house. He had he had a key in the I think he was in the library and he had a key in with him, so he got out. But makes you wonder uh, who locked the door. There was a lot of back and forth about whether there were mice in the building. I think that's probably got to do with either how observant you are or what time of year it is. Uh, doors slammed in the house when it was supposedly empty. As usual, how mysterious is this? Depends on who else was really there and where they were, you know? So, again, stuff we're probably never going to know. And I, I find this whole episode a bit disappointing. I mean, it, what, what a wonderful thing to try and do to, like, fill a haunted house with, you know, trained observers for an entire year and get records of what's going on. That's absolutely brilliant. It kind of looks like Price did this and then kind of busied himself doing other things in other places because he couldn't afford to spend a whole year there himself. So, I mean, most of the really good stuff was done by Glanville and his family. And a lot of this is done, I, I believe, in good faith. But, I mean, when you have non-scientific or non-trained observers, or not not very well trained, to be, to be fair, you know, you're going to get all this material of like, oh, I think I heard something spooky there, did I? Or, oh, I thought I saw something moving, which... You can you can absolutely talk yourself into believing even when you're in a non haunted even when you're not in the <laughs> the most haunted house in England. So that experiment came to an end in a way that was kind of unsatisfying, and it's probably not the most exciting part of the story. The house was eventually bought by a fellow called Gregson, who is suspected of having burned it for insurance reasons. One way or another, the house caught fire in 1939 and had to be taken apart a few years after that. It is said that uh, right up until the end, uh, spectral figures were seen watching the flames take the house to pieces. And there's a wonderful illustration of that in the Usborne Haunted Houses book as well. Uh, if you care to look that up and have it haunt your nightmares with these <laughs> weird watery sort of semi-transparent uh, figures staring morosely at the flames. Good stuff. Such was the end of Borley Rectory, to quote the title of Harry Price's second book about it, but that was not the end of the story, of course. The legend lives on. On the one hand, um, the, the name of the place was set for, for all time. It's, it's set in history, 
and people were not going to let this go. There's absolutely no way the legend was going to die there. And sure enough, people reported seeing strange things amongst the ruins. Harry Price came back in the 1940s and did some digging to look for the bones of the nun and did came to find some and that's hugely controversial and I don't have time to get into it. The village itself, especially the church, has had a lot of strange stories told about it over the years, but I don't know, it doesn't excite me the way the house does because it's, it's a, at this point it's a little tainted, you know? The, fl- the place was so famous, there's just, there's no way that people, I'd, be, I'd have been more surprised if people didn't report there was something going on there because it's Borley Rectory, the most haunted house in England. The legend will live on and I think that's the place where we need to leave it. So, folks, hopefully you've enjoyed this. If you're listening, you're still listening, I thank you very much. Uh, Hopefully you've had a lovely Halloween, or maybe you're even still having one, depending on when you listen to this. If you like the show, all the usual things apply. Please share an episode with whoever listens. Um, Please review. Please check out our merchandise. Click on the link in the show notes, and click on the links in our bios, at Strange Ireland over on Twitter, and... We are White Atlantic Weird on Instagram. But this time, don't forget, we have extra stuff. So there's an extra bonus episode, which is the version of White Atlantic Weird Plus that everybody can check out. And there will be those coming out special bonus episodes for people who do sign up to the Patreon. So you can listen to the first one to get an idea of what it's all about. And please do take a look at the Patreon as well, if for no other reason than to see that one of the characters from this episode shows up under one of the tiers, and maybe you'd appreciate the in-joke. So, thanks for listening. As always, stay safe, and we'll catch you on the other side. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.